Good morning, everybody. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and specifically Zechariah's sixth night vision. And this sermon is part seven in our ongoing series through Zechariah, and I'm titling it Heaven Meets Earth, subtitle The Covenant Curse Scroll. Heaven Meets Earth, The Covenant Curse Scroll which is a slightly ominous and haunting title for this night vision, which may initially shock us, but which I'm praying will ultimately surprise us with great encouragement and hope. And before we get into the night vision, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the two lenses through which I've viewed my childhood. The two lenses through which I've viewed my childhood. The first lens is the lens through which I viewed my childhood when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, here's how I saw things. My parents are way too strict and have way too many rules and discipline me way too much. They don't let me do things that some of my friends are allowed to do. And they don't let me go places that some of my friends are allowed to go. And I get in trouble for things that some of my friends don't get in trouble for at all. And so, my parents must not care about me as much as some of my friends' parents care about them because if my parents really cared about me, they'd let me do what I want to do. They'd let me be free. But instead, I'm a prisoner to my parents' rules, and it's not fair. That's how I saw things as a kid, and perhaps some of you saw things the exact same way. But the second lens is the lens through which I view my childhood now as an adult. And here's how I see things now. My parents knew things that I didn't know and saw things that I didn't see. And everything my parents did, it was all to protect me and lead me and guide me and to not just give me over to my own ignorance and selfishness and sinfulness. Now I see that it's not that my parents cared about me less than some of my parents' friends, but my parents cared about me enough to not just let me do whatever I want to do because they knew that that would be at my own peril. So at the time, my parents' structure and boundaries and rules, it all felt like a curse. It all felt like a curse at the time, but, but really it was a blessing. It was for my good. And perhaps some of you had a similar moment in adulthood where you had a shift in your perspective and now you look back on your childhood through a different lens. And yet, sometimes, even as grown-ups, even as biological adults, we can tend to think and act in ways that are spiritually childish. We see our friends doing things that we're not allowed to do, and we think, that's not fair. Why do they get to do that, but I can't? Instead of being grieved and brokenhearted over our friend's sin. Or we see our friends going places that we're not allowed to go, and we think, that's not fair. Why do they get to go there, but I can't? Instead of crying out to God to change the path they're going down, which is unto their own destruction. Or 
we're disciplined for a sin that the world says is okay or totally normal or natural, and we think, that's not fair. Why do you let them get away with it, Lord, but you discipline us? Rather than thanking God, thanking God for not just giving us over to our own sin, but for graciously pursuing us through his discipline and for rescuing us through our repentance. And if you're a Christian, you're no stranger to some of these thoughts. We've all been in that place at one time or another. And, and sometimes these thoughts have led us to rebel against God and to wander off into the far country like the prodigal son. And in our passage this morning, we'll see a people who are right there. They're right there. They're stuck in a rut of rebellion and wandering. And perhaps some of us, if we're honest, would admit that that's where we are right now. We've rebelled and we've wandered and we're struggling to desire God. We're struggling to believe that God's way is the best way. We're struggling to see our lives through the right lens. And if that is you this morning, I am praying that God would speak to you in a special way this morning, that you would be so moved by the message of Zechariah's sixth night vision that you would come running home into the arms of your heavenly Father who cares for you, not out of fear or out of guilt, but out of love. And for those of us who've walked with God long enough to learn that, in the words of Martin Luther, all of a Christian's life is one of continual repentance, there will be an opportunity for us to come home in some way as well. Okay. Let me pray for us, though, before we get started. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, help us to see what you would have us to see and to see through the right lens this morning. Lord, help us to see that we are not so different than the people in this night vision and that truly, in a sense, we are the people in this night vision. And Lord, help us to see our Savior afresh this morning. For your glory alone. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Haggai, which comes right before Zechariah. The book of Haggai, uh, if you turn to the New Testament book of Matthew and then turn back three books, you'll find Haggai. And the reason we're beginning in the book of Haggai this morning is because Haggai prophesied just a couple months before Zechariah and provides us some valuable historical information which will be relevant for our passage this morning. And just to refresh our memories a bit, here's where we're at in Old Testament history. There's been an exile in 586 BC where the people of Judah, the Judeans, were banished by God through Babylon from their land because of their sin. And there's been a return in 538 BC where the Judeans were allowed to come back to the land of Judah from exile. And there's been an abandoned temple where in 
536 BC, the Judeans laid the foundation of the new temple because their old one had been destroyed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But then they stopped working on the temple completely. They abandoned that building project altogether. And now it's 520 BC, 16 years later, and the, and the temple is still abandoned. And here's the message God gives to the Judeans through the prophet Haggai in Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people, the Judeans, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, the temple. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So this passage tells us three important things about the Judeans attitude and actions after the exile. Number one, the Judeans have been avoiding God's house. They say in verse two, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is another way of saying, we'll get to it when we get to it. And, and this is so sad because the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. And so what the Judeans are essentially saying is, when we're ready for you to come back, Lord, then you can come back, but, but not now. And what wickedness, not only to keep God at arm's length, but to presume that God will just come crawling back to them when they're ready to receive him. And number two, the Judeans have been busying themselves with their own houses, which exposes the self-centered and self-exalting nature of their hearts. And it gets even worse. Number three, it appears that the Judeans have built their own houses with the wood that had been designated for the rebuilding of God's house. And here's why this appears to be the case. We know from the book of Ezra that when the Judeans returned to their land, they gathered all the wood and other materials that they needed to rebuild the temple. But they only got so far as to lay the foundation and then gave up. So they must have still had all this wood lying around somewhere, right? Well, if they did, why does God tell them in verse 8 to go up into the hills and gather wood? 
And why does God specifically mention in verse 4 their paneled houses? Presumably wood paneled houses, which only the upper class in society would have been able to afford. And why have God's people been avoiding God's house like the plague for 16 years? I think it's because they used the wood that had been designated for the rebuilding of God's temple to build their own houses. And if that's the case, then we are dealing with a people who are so sinfully bent on serving themselves that they're stealing from God to do it. And, and in verses 5 and 7, God says, consider your ways. And then he reveals to them that, that all the curses they've experienced on their land and on their labors has been from his hand. And then two months later, the prophet Zechariah comes on the scene. And here's the very first message God gives to the Judeans through the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me. Come back to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Which tells us that the Judeans are still stuck in a rut of rebellion. And then God gives Zechariah eight night visions in which he's shown incredible symbolic images of the ways heaven will be meeting earth and God will be coming to redeem his people. And we've been looking at these night visions over the last few sermons. And in Zechariah's third night vision of the man with the measuring line, this theme of continued rebellion appeared again when God gave this interesting command to the Judeans, flee Babylon and escape to Zion, to Jerusalem. Which was interesting because, of course, the Judeans weren't in Babylon. They had been back in Judah for almost 18 years. But God was speaking to them figuratively as if they were still there because, in a sense, they were still in a kind of exile. Because while they had returned to their land, they had yet to return to their God, whom the exile was intended to banish them from. And now this morning in Zechariah's sixth night vision, this theme of continued rebellion appears again and is confronted in a big way. Let me read it. Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Again I, Zechariah, lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he, the interpreting angel, who's been guiding Zechariah through all these night visions, and he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. 
So the text tells us three important things about this cursed scroll. It tells us about its identity, its target, and its effect. So its identity, what it is, and its target against whom it's directed, and its effect, what it will accomplish. Let's look at the first thing, its identity. So what exactly is this cursed scroll? And it appears to be a covenant document between God and his people. A covenant document between God and his people. And just to explain this a bit, in the Old Testament, we see a handful of occasions with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, where God initiates and sets the terms of and ratifies covenants, which are oath-bound commitments between him and his people. And every time, uh, the gist of the covenant is basically this, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this will be the nature of our relationship. And these will be the covenant blessings for your obedience, and these will be the covenant curses for your disobedience. I am making this covenant between me and you. And this curse scroll appears to be a covenant document, a document describing the details of the Judeans' covenant relationship with God. And here are three reasons why. Number one, in verse three, this flying scroll is called the curse. And we know that along with promised blessings, there were promised curses in divine covenants in the event that the covenant was broken, which we know has happened from Haggai and Zechariah. And number two, in verse four, we learn that the consequence of the Judean sin will be the destruction of their homes. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we learn that the two ultimate curses that would come upon covenant breakers were exile to a foreign land and the destruction of their homes in the Holy Land. The exile part of the covenant curse already passed when the Judeans were taken away to Babylon, but the destruction of their homes part of the covenant curse is about to befall them. And number three, in verse four, it's made clear that this curse scroll is being sent out by God, who was the sovereign administrator of the covenant, the one who alone had the authority to send out its curses. And I'll give you one more bonus reason. Uh, in verse two, we learn that this curse scroll is massive. 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. It's about 30 feet by 15 feet. So this thing is like a giant billboard flying up there in the air. And nearly all the commentators I read point out that these were the exact dimensions of the forecourt or the porch of Solomon's temple, which was the place where the covenant law was read aloud to the people of Judah. So there's something else in the text that's either, you know, coincidental or intentional. So those are three and maybe four reasons for why this curse scroll appears to be a covenant document between God and his people. Second, let's look at the curse scroll's target. So against whom is this curse scroll 
directed. And verses 3 and 4 tell us that this covenant curse will fall upon those who steal, according to what is on one side of the scroll, and those who swear falsely or make false oaths in God's name. In God's name, which is really the main issue here, according to what is on the other side of the scroll. Now, what's interesting is that scrolls in the ancient world were always written on just one side. Always. But this scroll, like the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments, was written on the front and the back. Now, think with me about these two sins that are being called out here. Stealing and swearing falsely in God's name. The first is a violation of the Eighth Commandment, theft, which is a sin against your neighbor. And the second violation, or the second is a violation of the Third Commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain, which is a sin against God himself. Here it's invoking the holy name of God as your witness in the act of lying, which is pure wickedness. It, it degrades and belittles his holy name. Now, hold that thought right here and think with me about this. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees send an expert in the Old Testament law to test Jesus. Remember this? To ask him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds to his question in verses 37 through 40, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that if you are loving God, and if you are loving your neighbor, you'll find yourself fulfilling all the law of God, the whole law of God. And if you read through the Ten Commandments, you can see that they're divided into these two major categories of loving God, commandments 1 through 4, and loving your neighbor, commandments 5 through 10, just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. Now, to tie this all together, it's interesting that this night vision only calls out these two sins of stealing and swearing falsely in God's name, because we know from Haggai and Zechariah that the Judeans had committed many other covenant-breaking sins. And so, most commentators agree that it seems that these two sins, one against neighbor on one side of the scroll and the other against God on the other side of the scroll, are intended to categorically represent the whole law of God. It's a figure of speech called synecdoche. Synecdoche, where a part of something is used to represent the whole. Like when we say, we need more hands, when we're doing something that requires more people. Or when we say, nice wheels, when we're complimenting someone's car. And there are, you know, numerous phrases in the Bible uh, that employ synecdoche, like, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Um, anyways, synecdoche is a figure of speech where a part of something is used to represent the whole of a thing. And so, if the commentators are right, then this means that the covenant curse will fall not only upon those who have stolen and those who have sworn falsely in God's name, but upon 
all who failed to love their neighbor in any way, and all who've failed to love God in any way, making everyone in Judah a target of the curse scroll. Okay. Third, let's look at the curse scroll's effect. So, what will this curse scroll accomplish? And verse 4 tells us that the curse scroll will consume the covenant breakers' houses, both timber and stones. So this connects us back to the book of Haggai. And the picture here is that of utter ruin being brought upon these criminal houses the Judeans have built. And here's something that's interesting. Uh, remember how I talked about how in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we learned that the two ultimate curses that would come upon covenant breakers were exile to a foreign land and the destruction of their homes in the Holy Land? Well, in the part of that chapter that talks about uh, the curse of exile to a foreign land, it talks about how there in exile, God's people would worship the idols of their captors made of wood and stone. The Babylonian gods Marduk and Nebo and others, all of which were represented by, uh, you know, statues and figurines. And I can't help but recognize that though the Judeans have returned from exile and may not be worshiping these Babylonian idols anymore, the Judeans are still worshiping idols of wood and stone, but now in a different form, and perhaps an even worse form, in the form of their own houses, these domestic temples of treachery and greed. The Judeans are literally living in their idolatry, and the effect of the curse scroll will be the crushing of these idols, these criminal houses, to pieces. And so to summarize, this curse scroll appears to be a covenant document sent out by God over the face of the whole land of Judah, seeking out all covenant breakers like a heat-seeking missile to destroy their houses of idolatry. And I think the message that Zechariah was supposed to interpret from this night vision and bring back to the Judeans is twofold. Number one, God sees all sin. God sees all sin. You know, just because the Judeans hid in their houses and avoided God's house didn't mean that they could avoid God himself and his all-seeing gaze. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God can see what happens behind closed doors and curtains and laptop screens. He can see every thought in our minds. He can see every intention of our hearts. 
The darkness of night cannot hide our sin from him. The bottom of the ocean cannot hide our sin from him. Deleted text messages and emails cannot hide our sin from him. God saw Adam and Eve's nakedness, though they covered themselves with fig leaves. God saw Cain's murder of Abel, though no human eye witnessed the crime. God saw the unbelief in Sarah's heart when she inconspicuously laughed to herself. God saw what David was up to when he sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah out to the front lines of battle where he eventually died. And God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him in his sin. God saw Jonah at the bottom of that ship headed away from Nineveh, and God sent a storm to confront him in his sin. God saw Ananias and Sapphira's deceit. Remember that story from Acts? And he struck them both dead right in front of the very church members they were lying to. You know, comparing ourselves to others cannot hide our sin from God. Blame shifting cannot hide our sin from God. All kinds of excuse making cannot hide our sin from God. Trying really hard to do better cannot hide our sin from God. Even doing a lot of good things cannot hide our sin from God. In, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24, God rhetorically asks, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? And the answer is no. Everyone who has tried to play hide-and-seek with God loses because he sees all. And the giant flying curse scroll symbolically illustrated this truth as it had a bird's eye view of everything as it soared above the land of Judah and as it would swoop down into each house to find behind closed doors covenant breakers. And this truth that God sees all sin should make us a little uneasy, a little uncomfortable because of the second part of this twofold message, which is that God judges all sin. God judges all sin. And when I say that, I'm not referring to the final judgment, which we'll talk more about next week uh, when we look at Zachariah's next night vision. I'm talking about the fact that presently, right now, all of our words and deeds are being weighed in the balance by the all-seeing God whose law is the measure, the standard of what is right and what is wrong. And all of our words and deeds that violate God's law are deemed by God to be sin. And if our wicked hearts, upon, the law, uh, upon which the law of God has been written, Romans 2.15, if our wicked hearts haven't become too seared and hardened by sin already, we will hear 
our consciences bear witness against us that we are guilty. And you need to be aware of the fact that we live in a culture that is constantly trying to escape God's judgment. Constantly trying to escape God's judgment. We try to escape God's judgment by numbing our consciences with drugs and alcohol and medications and mantras and all sorts of things to avoid our very real feelings of guilt over those thoughts and actions that we the culture have determined is okay. And we try to escape God's judgment by observing what everyone else is doing and then concluding that our thoughts and actions must be totally normal or natural. And we try to escape God's judgment by using catch-all words like choice or preference or freedom or tolerance to justify our thoughts and actions. And we try to escape God's judgment by parading through the streets, celebrating our thoughts and actions, and even calling each other brave and heroes for it. And we try to escape God's judgment by looking to a big book written by psychiatrists and psychologists, which tells us that some of our thoughts and actions are merely dysfunctions or disorders that we are victim to. We live in a culture where we have suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. We have suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness, sinfully silencing and searing and squashing our consciences, like Pinocchio with that obnoxious little cricket whom he killed in the original story. And there are many stories in the Bible of people who tried to escape God's judgment, but failed. And for the sake of time, I'll just tell you one of these stories, which is especially relevant to our passage this morning. It's uh, from Jeremiah chapter 36. And what happens is King Jehoiakim, who reigned in Judah before their exile to Babylon, uh, he receives a scroll full of covenant curses upon the house of Judah, written by a guy named Baruch, which was dictated by God's prophet Jeremiah. And King Jehoiakim decides that he doesn't really like what's written on this cursed scroll, and so he decides to cut it all up into pieces and throw it into a fire, which, as it turns out, was a pretty bad idea because what happens is that the this, this scroll essentially rises from the ashes as God commands it to be rewritten by Baruch and Jeremiah with many curses added to it because of King Jehoiakim's sin. God judges all sin and everyone who tries to outrun or outwit escape God's judgment fails. And the giant flying curse scroll symbolically illustrated this truth as it 
undoubtedly cast a daunting shadow upon everything beneath it. And as written on it was no government's law, or nation's law, or culture's law, or individual's law, but God's law. The law by which all are judged. The law whose transgression calls down upon its transgressor curses. So the message of Zechariah's sixth night vision is that God sees and judges all sin. Now, if we leave this night vision right here, this is not good news. There is no encouragement here. There is no hope here. In fact, this is quite terrifying. It is a terrifying message that God sees and judges all sin and will send a covenant curse upon his people. And so the key, the key to seeing this passage as good news and encouraging and hopeful is to, to bring you back to the beginning of the sermon, to view it through the right lens. See, if we don't view this night vision through the right lens, here's what we'll see. We'll see a heavenly father who is harsh and oppressive, way too strict, has way too many rules. We'll see a heavenly father who must not care about his children because he imprisons them to his will and doesn't let them just do whatever they want to do. We'll see a heavenly father who isn't fair because he lets the other nations and peoples get away with murder while his people are disciplined for much more minor crimes. You know, from, even from ancient times, some people have viewed God the Father this way. You know, they've, they've seen how God deals with his people or they've experienced how God deals with them and they've concluded that he must be an egomaniacal tyrant. In fact, as just a side note, um, this was a heresy that arose in the early church by a guy named Marcion who concluded that the God of the Old Testament is evil and not the same God of the New Testament. And he and his followers took this view so far that they ended up cutting 55 books out of the Bible, leaving only 11 that they liked. And so to avoid falling into a kind of modern Marcionism, or you might call it Jehoiakimism, we have to have a shift in our perspective. And we have to see this night vision through the right lens. And when we do, here's what we see. We see a heavenly father who cares for his children enough to not just let them do whatever they want to do because he knows that that would be at their own peril. We see a heavenly father who loves his children so much that despite their continued rebellion against him, he will not just give them over to their own ignorance and selfishness and sinfulness and ultimately destruction. We see a heavenly father who is lovingly pursuing his children through discipline 
and is rescuing them through their repentance. In love, God is doing what it takes to get their attention. And because his daily blessings have been continually overlooked, he's resorted to curses which aren't so easily ignored. And so this is an act of God's judgment. But even more, even more, it's an act of his redemption. Think of it this way. God's first act of redemption was in taking his people out of Babylon. But his second act is now in taking Babylon out of his people for their good through discipline. And how is this possible? How is it possible that God would do this when we know that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23? When we know that God is holy and perfect and just and that because of this, any sin against him, no matter how minor, is so serious that it earns them the death sentence, that it makes them punishable to death. How is it possible that God would only discipline his people and not heap upon them all of the wrath that their lifetime of sinning against him deserved? Here's how it's possible. Because a little over 500 years later, God the Father would send his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus Christ, the promised serpent slayer of the Adamic covenant, God's covenant with Adam. Jesus Christ, the spiritual life preserver who would protect his people from the flood of God's righteous wrath in a kind of typological fulfillment of God's promise to Noah in the Noahic covenant. Jesus Christ, the promised seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. Jesus Christ, the covenant law keeper who, by his sinless obedience to God, the Father would secure for his people all covenant blessings and bring his people into the greater promised land of heaven in fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant with Moses. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who would establish his throne and his kingdom forever in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. Jesus Christ, whom the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were pointing to when they said that one day God will establish a new covenant with his people. Jesus Christ, who in his final gathering with his disciples before he went to the cross, took bread and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. And then gave them a cup saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
Jesus Christ, who upon the cross saw all the sins of his people, past, present, and future, all sin done against God, all sin done against our neighbor, and then took it all upon himself and was judged and died as a substitute in our place. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You hear that? Jesus bore in his body the curse upon the cross and was utterly destroyed like the Judeans' idol houses so that we wouldn't have to be. And then Jesus rose from death, proving that he was the possessor of the power of a life that is stronger than death itself. John 3.36 says that for those apart from Christ, God's wrath remains on them. God's wrath remains on them. But in Jesus... Through trusting in Jesus, this ultimate consequence and curse of sin, which loomed over our heads like the curse scroll loomed above the land of Judah, this ultimate consequence and curse of sin fell on him, on Christ the Savior. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus, which when received by repentance which is to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus in faith when received by repentance and through trusting in Jesus alone for salvation and and to make us right before the eyes of God. The gospel, when received, moves us from curse to blessing, from wrath to grace, from idolatry to true worship, from hiding from God to being hid in God, from the far country back home into the arms of our Heavenly Father who cares for us. By God's grace, the gospel moves us from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight and spiritual deafness to spiritual hearing, and spiritual death, even. Spiritual death to spiritual life. I ask you, are you seeing through the right lens this morning? Do you see your need for a Savior this morning? Do you see the kindness that God has shown us in Christ, his son, this morning? Will you gladly forsake every idolatrous house you've built, every little kingdom created by your design and not God's, where you sit on the throne and not God, and where you determine what is right and wrong and not God, and where you think you are safe and secure, but you are not because the flood of God's judgment is fast approaching and you've built your house upon the sand and not the rock who is Christ the Son. Will you 
gladly forsake every idolatrous house you've built and cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus. I want to invite you to do that this morning for the very first time, if you've never done that before, to confess to God that you know that you are guilty of sin and rebellion against him, that you know that you have broken his perfect holy law, that you know that you have not lived in the way he created you to live, and then to repent of your sin, to turn away from your sin, and to turn to Jesus in, your, in faith by casting yourself upon his grace and mercy and love. He will forgive you of all your sins. He will purify you and cleanse you. Isaiah, no matter what you've done, Isaiah 118 says that he will wash you white as snow. Psalm 103 verse 12 says that as far as east is from the west, he will remove your sins from you. And you'll be adopted into God's family. That means that you'll have brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll be adopted into God's spiritual family. And God will give you his Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into all truth and wisdom and righteousness. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that you'll become a new creation. You'll be a new person. And Jesus says that you'll come under a new covenant in his life's blood where the curse and sting of death has been removed forever and where you will never die because Jesus did in your place. And so you'll live eternally with God forever. And if you're hearing this and you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe someday I'll get right with God, but now is not the time. Then I want to warn you lovingly that that is the same attitude the Judeans had when they said, now is not the time to rebuild the house of the Lord. We'll get to it when we get to it. Do not presume that you will get things right with God someday. Do not presume that God will even give you breath tomorrow. You, you do not know what your life will bring. You do not know if you will be here a week from now. Your life is in his hands, not your own. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts, but repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. I'm asking you today, come home to Jesus. And if you're a believer already, the call is the same. Forsake every idolatrous house you've built and come home to Jesus and into his wonderful kingdom. Ask God to reveal to you what those idolatrous houses are, those, way that you've, those ways that you've sinned and rebelled and wandered, those ways that you have established yourself apart from God. Ask God to reveal those things to you and then repent of them and come home. See that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities and then rose from the dead so that we might hide ourselves in him and not in the things of this world which are quickly passing away and will eventually be destroyed. 
And if I may be so bold, I might say that if there are things in your life that have completely fallen apart, it is possible. I'm not saying that this absolutely is the case, but it is possible that you are experiencing God's active judgment, rather discipline upon you. God's active discipline upon you. And if that's the case, repent of your sins and come home and then thank God for not just giving you over to your sin, which is the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to you. Thank God for allowing your kingdom to crumble so that you can find your place in his. And if you've been blessed to not have things in your life completely fall apart, then I would urge you to heed God's kindnesses before you are made to heed God's disciplinary curses. Let me say that one more time. Heed God's kindnesses before you are made to heed his disciplinary curses. You know, it's true that God disciplines the ones he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. But it's also true that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in the presence of God, Psalm 16, 1. And that many of those disciplinary curses can be avoided by living your life in the presence of God. And that's what I want for you, Cedar Home Baptist Church. I want for for you fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I want to live my life with you in, in such a way that together we are living Coram Deo. Coram Deo, which is a Latin phrase the Reformers used, which translate before the face of God. Coram Deo, before the face of God. I want to live my life with you before his face, before his sight, in his view, in his temple, as it were. So I'm asking you to turn and come home today, whatever that looks like for you in your walk with God, you know. Turn and come home today through Jesus. And here's an encouraging promise. When you do, you will find that God the Father has already come running out to meet you and to embrace you and, and he will not be angry with you. He will not be frustrated with you. Rather, his attitude, his disposition, his heart toward you will be one kind of like the father who received his prodigal son home, who said this. He said, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I so desperately want for you, Cedar Home Baptist Church today, whoever you are, wherever you are, to come into this life that God extends to you, to be found by this Father who loves you. And so repent and come home today, wherever you are, not out of fear or out of guilt, 
but out of love. Out of love for the one who sent his son Jesus to the cross where our sin was seen and judged and where the curse was removed forever for his children whom he loves. Amen. And instead of closing our service with my own prayer this morning, I want to close the service with a prayer from this book, The Valley of Vision. Um, and before I do, I'll just also remind you that next week we'll be looking at Zachariah's next night vision, his seventh night vision. So hopefully you'll join us to uh, dig into that. Um, but this is a prayer titled, The Mover. O supreme moving cause. He's talking about God. May I always be subordinate to thee, be dependent upon thee, be found in the path where thou dost walk and where thy spirit moves. Take heed of estrangement from thee, of becoming insensible to thy love. Thou dost not move men like stones, but dost endue them with life, not to enable them to move without thee, but in submission to thee, the first mover. O Lord, I am astonished at the difference between my receivings and my deservings, between the state I am now in and my past gracelessness, between the heaven I am bound for and the hell I merit. Who made me to differ but thee? For I was no more ready to receive Christ than were others. I could not have begun to love thee hadst thou not first loved me, or been willing unless thou hast first made me so. Oh, that such a crown should befit the head of such a sinner, such high advancement be for an unfruitful person, such joys for so vile a rebel. Infinite wisdom cast the design of salvation into the mold of purchase and freedom. Let wrath deserved be written on the door of hell, but let the free gift of grace be written on the gate of heaven. I know that my sufferings are the result of my sinning, but in heaven both shall cease. Grant me to attain this haven and be done with sailing, and may the gales of thy mercy blow me safely into harbor. Let thy love draw me nearer to thyself, wean me from sin, mortify me to this world, and make me ready for my departure hence. Secure me by thy grace as I sail across this stormy sea. And praise God for this prayer. So good. May this be all of our prayers this morning. And may we go now in the grace of God.